So uh, two weeks ago, I started, I started on point two of our Constitution on our Statement of Faith. And with that, we talked a lot about the Kingdom of God and the Kingdom of Heaven. And I've already had some folks look at me and go, that has changed my Bible reading. Uh, it's changed what I've noticed. Uh, and knowing that makes, makes all the difference. And so uh, we're going to start uh, today on dispensations officially now. Uh, point two in our Constitution talks about a dispensational view of the Bible. And I'm going to talk more about what that means entirely. Uh, but the Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you can see it up on the screen. Uh, I have never done a PowerPoint for a message. I'm super excited right now. Uh, you say, well, why did you do that? I did that because I didn't want to write it all on a whiteboard, all right? Uh, and make the guys pick it back up here like I did for that message on Satan and pride. And so I said, I could just whip up a PowerPoint really quick and see if it works, all right? So if this completely fails... Oops, um, and that's the best I've got. Uh, but what I'm trying to do right now is consolidate probably five hours worth of material into a morning message. All right, so hence the PowerPoint. We're going to try and simplify it, all right? And what I'm going to try to do is make things as simple as I possibly can while still giving you the right information. Now, the job of the pastor is very interesting because he doesn't just preach as a preacher. He also is supposed to teach as a teacher. Uh, pastors and teachers in Ephesians chapter 4 are purposely linked. And so this morning is going to be quite a bit of teaching and a lot of information. Some of you know all of this and it won't be a big thing and you'll be perfectly fine. Anybody who wants this printed or uh, you all know my fondness for virtually zero notes, okay? So these are my notes. I got to pack it, all right? Uh, which is why I'm trying to consolidate as best I can and also why my brain feels like it's going to explode, all right? So, bear with me. Uh, and the Bible is very particular. He tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, most of you know this as a memory verse, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That easily tells you one thing very clearly, the Bible, the word of truth, must be divided for certain reasons. It also takes study to figure out what is divided and what is not divided and why are they divided. And so we looked at a division last time, two weeks ago, before Brother Tony was here. We looked at a particular division and I did it on purpose because if you don't get the difference that there is the kingdom of God, spiritual, and the kingdom of heaven, physical, you will mess up a whole lot of doctrine. And so we divide. The Lord divides those things. God is constantly talking about being a divider. He divides all sorts of things. Genesis in creation, what does he do? He divides the light from the darkness. I mean, he starts off immediately with dividing. <laughs> that is what God does. He divides out to separate things. And so the dispensations are there. And the reason they are there is so that God can ultimately show forth his handiwork. So uh, we're going to have a word of prayer and we're going to get into the, to the slides. I'm hopefully going to be able to explain everything and you can get everything. And if you need more references, there's more references than what I'll put up here. All right. Uh, if you need more information or you want to ask a question, you can feel free to talk to Pastor Legault. He's not that busy. Uh, you can... <laughs> kidding. Um, no, you can talk to either one of us will gladly take the time to explain all these things in depth. All right. Uh, I do it with people. I answer their questions. I have no problem answering questions on this and what the Bible shows on it is replete. This is not just a, oh, he happened upon a verse. All right. This is over and over and over throughout the scriptures. And so we're going to take a look at these today. As best I can, there are seven dispensations, eight if you include the tribulation as one, we call it a parenthetical one as well and so on. And I won't get into that yet. But here we are. Let's say a word of prayer because I need it. All right. Lord, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that we know for sure we're going to heaven because we've trusted in him. And Father, I thank you that those here that have trusted in him know the same. Father, I pray if someone here is lost without Jesus Christ, I pray they'd understand some of these things. But Father, most importantly, I pray they would understand that Jesus Christ loves them died for them, wants to save them to the uttermost if they would just call upon Him. 
Lord, what a wonder it is to have a Savior and what a wonder it is to know for sure we're in heaven forever. But Lord, I do pray you would help us to understand these things so that as we look at the Bible and we look at the Scriptures, we can understand them more clearly and define them, Lord, so that we can do and understand what we need to do to serve a wonderful God. We love you and we pray you'd get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So the question comes, uh, what is... I've already failed. There we go. All right. Uh, What is a dispensation? So a dispensation, people go, well, that's a time period. Not exactly. They can overlap. They can have different issues. So we don't want to do that. Uh, But a dispensation is a moral probationary period of history where the administration changes for each dispensation. Uh, Ultimately, is the idea that God dispenses a set of instructions by which we must live in order to have a relationship with Him. Uh, To have a relationship with God, you must meet the criteria to have said relationship. All right? So each dispensation ultimately is going to eliminate mankind's excuse for the reasons that they come short of the glory of God, right? Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Lord is laying out these rules, and as He lays out the rules, He is eliminating mankind's excuses as to why they should get into heaven upon some set of merits of their own. And God says, no, no, that's not how this works. All right? And so he's going to lay out the rules. Now you say, why does God get to make the rules? Because he's God. (laughs) Heaven is his. Eternity is his. He is the ruler. So you know what he gets to do? He gets to make the rules. So why does he get to change the rules? Because he's God. And so he gets to change the rules when he needs to change the rules. And so he gives man adequate time to either succeed or fail at the tests that are given throughout the dispensations. And so each dispensation includes three things. They include a test for mankind. They include the failure of mankind because mankind never passes their test. And they include the judgment upon mankind for their failure. Each dispensation holds all of those things. Now here comes the great question. Uh, Is it always just simply by grace through faith like you and I have? Well, every, every age, every dispensation has an element of grace. You say, why? Because no person ever deserves a sinless heaven. Because all have sinned. So you need the grace, the unmerited favor of God to be given to you. God has to be gracious. It is in His character and in His nature to be merciful and gracious to us. So every, every age must have an element of grace. Because humanity is not perfect and they fail. Also... They all have some degree of faith. Now, for instance, we're going to get to the first one here in just a moment, but Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, do not, they do not have the same element of faith that you and I have. You say, why? Because they walked with God in the cool of the day. They heard the voice of God telling them exactly what is supposed to be done. The disciples, Thomas, right? The problem with Thomas is... Blessed are they that believe and have not seen. (laughs) You and I haven't seen Jesus. I haven't seen him face to face, if you have. Uh, Anyways, um, we believe in a book. We believe what God said. Well, Adam and Eve had to believe what God said about that tree. That was the problem. They didn't believe him. They went against him. And so there is an element of faith in every dispensation. But the faith in what is the question? Before Jesus Christ dies and gives his life, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, The Old Testament, nobody in the Old Testament believed on Jesus and got saved. So how do you know that? In Proverbs, what is his name or what is his son's name if thou canst tell? Nobody knows what his name is. So how did you get salvation? I found out the name of Jesus. Neither is there salvation or any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. They didn't know his name. In fact, they didn't even understand that he had to suffer. So how do you know that? Nobody else knew. All the apostles are following him and Jesus is like, hey, don't you know I got to suffer these things and be delivered and so on? And Peter's like, not so, Lord. He's ready to take up a sword and fight everybody off to go ahead and protect Jesus. And Jesus is like, don't worry about it. We got to do this. They don't know what's happening. 
They don't understand it. Looking ahead, looking ahead to a cross doesn't work. You say, why? They have no idea what the cross was. But they were given rules and instructions on how to know God and have a relationship with Him. And that is the dispensations. And so what is their faith placed in to give them grace through that faith? And so that's what we're going to look at because ultimately these are the dispensations. And so there is a wonderful chart that I'm going to show you that you probably can't read because it's too small. All right, you can't read this. This is wonderful. Uh, each dispensation coincides partially with a covenant that God makes with mankind. All right, so you see the words of the covenants at the top, all right? Then you can't read anything else. All right, I apologize. If you want this chart, it's in Clarence Larkin's book, Dispensational Truth. Uh, but uh, you start off, and I'm just going to kind of walk over here, and you've got the Edenic covenant with Adam and Eve and the fall of man, and then you get, uh, of course... Uh, the conscience where mankind is working. And uh, of course, he gets to go ahead and deal with all the other covenants. And as he meets with men, he's got, he's got a covenant that he makes with Adam and then he, uh, with the Garden of Eden. Then he's got a covenant he makes with Adam after the fall. Then he's got a covenant he makes with Noah. Then he's got a covenant that he makes with, Mo with Abraham. Then he's got a covenant that he makes with Moses. And then you get out to the New Testament and he gets a covenant that he makes with the church. There's covenants over and over again. He's making these promises. There's a Davidic covenant in the Old Testament that carries all the way out to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And these are all pieces, and I'm not going to cover all the covenants. Normally what I do is I do kingdoms, covenants, dispensations. If you have a question about the covenants, feel free, I will answer them. But God makes covenants with man. He makes an agreement with mankind. He's the one who decides what the promises are. He's the one who decides the conditions of the covenant. And many of them are completely unconditional. There is nothing they have to do to fulfill the, the covenant that God is providing. God makes a deal with Abraham while Abraham's sleeping. Abraham got a great deal that day. God gave him everything and Abraham slept through the whole thing. It was wonderful. Abraham didn't agree to a thing. God did all the agreeing. He said, Abraham, I'm taking you. Here we go. So it's not the same. And so uh, we start off here and all the way back to the book of Genesis we go. And if you want to look at these references, you can. For the sake of time, I am not reading all of this. All right, this will take me forever to read every passage. So I'm going to trust that you've got some memory on some very important scriptures throughout the Bible. All right, and if you don't, feel free to look them up. All right, uh, and I will gladly email the PowerPoint to anybody if you want them. I'll send them, all right? Just let me know. Shoot me a text. Give me your email address and say, hey, can you send me that? I'll send you this, all right? Uh, but the dispensation of innocence shows up. Uh, this runs from the time that Adam and Eve are created and they are given the law about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all the way up until the fall of man. And so it's probably an unknown length of time. We have no idea how long Adam and Eve are in the garden before Eve is convinced by Satan to take of the fruit in Genesis chapter 3. We have no idea how long that is. Uh, and, in, and so... She's there. Now, the test of mankind is this. Uh, they are made completely innocent. They do not have any, any sin. They are completely innocent. And all they have to do is stay innocent. And there's only one command, right? Genesis chapter 2, 16, 17. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's all you have to do. Avoid one tree in a garden full of trees. You would think this is child's play. Evidently, not so much. Because Adam and Eve failed the test. Genesis chapter 3, right? Eve takes the fruit, takes a bite, hands it to Adam and says, here, eat this too. And Adam decides, I'm going to die with my wife, Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare's a thief. Anyways. And so then the judgment comes. Judgment falls upon mankind. You say, what is the judgment? The judgment is the curse that shows up. And death. Now, death was immediate. They got spiritual death. They no longer have the walk in the garden with God any longer. They don't have access. They lost access to a face-to-face -face relationship with God. We know that very quickly. They don't get to have God the same way. And they lose the garden. They're removed from the place that God had provided for them and sent out into the rest of creation. 
On top of that, God brings certain curses, right? He curses the ground. He curses the serpent. He curses the woman. He curses the man. All of them have curses that follow. Now you go, wait a minute. I thought this dispensation ended. Yes, but the ramifications don't always end. So the serpent is commanded. He's going to go on his belly and eat dust to the ground. The woman has pain in childbirth, sorrow in conception. She's got also submission to her husband. By the way, ladies, you can all go ahead and blame Eve for that. That's where it started. That was part of the judgment. And then the man, he's got to do hard labor, sweat of his face. And because of him, thorns and thistles will grow up out of the ground and they'll have things change very quickly because of the judgment that God has to bring because somebody disobeyed the rules of what they had. And so God goes ahead and does this. So this is the dispensation of innocence. It's called that because they were innocent when they started. And if they would maintain their innocence, they would be fine. And so we go on. And now you've got the dispensation of the conscience. The conscience shows up. Now the conscience, we all understand what our conscience is, right? I don't have to really explain that. It's the inner workings of the fact that we know what is good and what is evil. And our conscience bothers us right up until we sear it with a hot iron. And we stop doing what God told us to do long enough. And then we have to go ahead and purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And Right? All these verses on what the conscience is, right? Our conscience is internally, God has written in our hearts, the law that we understand very quickly what is right and what is wrong. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil did do one thing. It gave you knowledge of what was good and what was evil. It succeeded in doing what it was designed to do. Mankind's failure brought about the fact that you and I know both good and evil. In doing so, they now have a choice. And this dispensation runs from the fall of man when Adam and Eve sinned all the way out to the flood with Noah. And it runs that length because mankind is living by their conscience and they're trying to figure out what to do and how to do it and all these things. And God is gracious. It's approximately 1,700 years from the fall of Adam and Eve to the time that Noah builds an ark and gets into the boat. 1,700 years God lets this thing run. You know what mankind has accomplished? Well, Genesis chapter 6, of course, is wickedness beyond all human imaginations. Yet in Genesis chapter 6, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That's how wicked mankind gets in 1,700 years. Don't worry, we're getting better. Since when? All we did was get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. God says, oh yeah, let your conscience be your guide. See how that works. Uh, just go back to Genesis. You'll find out how quickly your conscience fails you. Because you quench that conscience and you go ahead and put that thing down. And mankind fails. And they fail so horribly right here that God says, okay, I'm going to send a flood to destroy the entirety of the earth's population outside of eight people in a boat and whatever animals I put on there. <laughs> That's kind of drastic. But that's how terrible mankind had gotten. Mankind is so awful that God purges the planet of its existence except for Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their three wives. Eight souls. That is it. And God says, okay, we're going to start all over again. Amen. And so when he starts all over again, you get the dispensation of ultimately we call it human government. Because some law starts to get put into order. God looks at Noah and he says, okay, I'm going to give you the same command I gave back there to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. He tells him to go and spread out and go across the earth and to go ahead and fill it and to take care of all those things. And so his command ultimately is to scatter and to multiply. This command goes out and it stays there all the way until the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 10, 11 right there. And the Tower of Babel shows up. Hmm. And you say, what's the problem? The problem is mankind didn't do what they were told. <laughs> they were told to scatter, to spread abroad and to multiply and to go ahead and have all these things put in place. And they don't do it. What do they do? They gather together and they say, let us make a tower to reach onto heaven. 
in our own strength and in our own might, we're going to go ahead and try to reach to God the way that we want to. That's religion. And God says, okay, I got to do something. So God comes down personally. Let's see what they're doing. So he comes down. And he goes and he takes a look and he says, you know what? I'm going to put an end to this because they didn't do what they were told. He says, you know what I'll do? I'll confound their languages. And so in Genesis chapter 11, you get a complete uh, confusion of all of their languages and confounds them and tells them, hey, guess what? You don't get to talk to each other the same way. Now you just start speaking gibberish. Nobody knows what anybody's saying. I mean, this is Pentecost, only nobody knows what's going on. In the world, you've got over 3,000 languages. I have no idea how many dialects, all sorts of things. I mean, you've got tons and tons of language now. And communication breakdown when you don't know somebody else's language. Say, so where'd that come from? That came from people not doing what God told them to do. And so God brings judgment. And so he's going to continue. Man, I'm doing pretty good. It's only 25 after. Praise Jesus. Or is good. And so you have the dispensation of family. Some people call this the dispensation of promise. Uh, this is where God chooses one individual off the face of the planet. You say, that doesn't seem fair. God makes the rules. <laughs> you realize that the only reason you and I are still here is because God chose one human being named Noah off of all the earth to go ahead and save it. I'm, I'm pretty confident in God's choices. He's better picker than I am, all right? I, if, I, if I choose something, sometimes I'm not quite right. He's always got the right man for the right job. And so he says, all right, I'm going to grab Abram. Later, his name is changed to Abraham. You know that, I hope, right? Abram becomes Abraham. This promise that God gives him is ultimately the Abrahamic covenant. It's a land grant. We talked about it last time. It is the kingdom of heaven. That is what he has given that promise goes from Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to the 12 patriarchs, and then to the nation of Israel. That promise is given to them. That's not given to us. And he goes ahead and puts this in place, and he calls Abraham. And this goes from the call of Abram all the way out to the Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, chapter 2. They're going to get ready to go. And God is using this. You say, what does God do? God tests Abram. And the question was, will you go where I told you to go and stay where I told you to stay? Get thee out of the earth of the Chaldees and go to the land that I will show thee of. And he tells them, all right, go down to Canaan. You're going to live there. What does Abram do? He doesn't stay. Trouble comes and he leaves. And he goes to Egypt. He doesn't do it just once, he does it twice. And so God brings judgment. That doesn't seem fair. He has to bring judgment. Say, yeah, but he chose Abram. Uh-huh. And Abram didn't do what he was told. He failed. And so the nation of Israel ultimately will go into, cap, into, into bondage in Egypt. And they do. They end up going down to Egypt. They choose to dwell there. The children of Israel even move there by themselves uh, when Joseph is in command. And then there rose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and he puts them into bondage. And they go into the bondage of Egypt. And so this, this promise, though, that covenant is not gone. It's not disannulled. And we're going to get to that here shortly. This covenant is a perfect covenant, and it is called the everlasting covenant to the nation of Israel. And we're going to get to fixing that in just a moment. But the truth is, God has made this promise. And He has chosen the nation of Israel to go ahead and be His people. And that has not changed. And so I'll get to a little bit more of that here in a moment. But then you have the dispensation of law. Now this is probably, the, uh, in the scriptures anyways, uh, you and I are living in the longest time period that will be uh, of a dispensation. Uh, but this is the dispensation of the law. It's approximately 1,500 years. It is from the time, that Moses, the time of the Exodus and the children of Israel leaving until the cross of Jesus Christ. They say, why is that? Because the New Testament goes into effect at the death of a testator. All right, so a testament is not in force. It's not in, in place. It is not working and functioning until the death of the testator. We find that out in Hebrews. 
And so Jesus Christ's death opens up the one thing that nobody else could do. And we'll get to it, the, the dispensation of the grace of God. Uh, and it brings eternal life that could not be done underneath what this covenant does. This is the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and it's under the dispensation of law. God has given the law. The test is that the nation of Israel is literally handed, <laughs> written out with the finger of God, the commandment that he wants. God's standing there and he goes, okay, Moses, I will etch this into stone and I will hand it to you. And the children of Israel consent. They agree that they're going to do whatever he commands them. Go ahead and read Exodus. You'll find it. It's right there on those references, actually. And so God gets, and you know what they do? They make a choice. They choose to break every one of those. Now, not only do they break the, uh, the, the civil laws that God hands them in those Ten Commandments, they break, they break the ceremonial laws, they break all of the civil laws, and they break all of the commandments that God commanded them to do. They break all of it. <laughs> By the time they're done, they break all of it. And God's like, okay, I'm done with you for a moment. What happens? Well, they break the law then. Ultimately, by the time you get out to Matthew chapter 27, they choose to reject the Messiah that God was bringing, Jesus Christ. That's where they stand up and they cry out, we have no king but Caesar. They reject him from being their king, their Messiah, their Savior. They reject him, and in doing so, they send him to Calvary, and he is crucified and slain. The rejection that comes was Jesus Christ was about to fulfill all the law and the prophets. That's his job. His goal, right, was to fulfill all the law and the prophets. He fulfills all the law. He does everything that he is commanded to do. And uh, he says in Hebrews that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus learned obedience as a son to the Father's will. And as he goes to Calvary, it is only because the children of Israel have rejected him. They've turned from him. So they didn't follow him. They didn't do what they were supposed to. The judgment ultimately finalizes in, in AD 70 when Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem and they are completely dispersed throughout the world. And you can find the prophecies for that there right up on the board. Deuteronomy, Exodus, or Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Luke talks about what's going to happen and how they work and how it all happens. And he pushes them all out. And God puts on pause the nation of Israel. Now this is very important that he puts it on pause. And the reason it is so important is because you are going to get into what we have right now. You have passed from the Old Testament now into the New Testament ultimately. The New Testament is in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've crossed over. Now you say, what, what are those Old Testament saints all trusting? What are those people who are, who are righteous? What are they trusting in as they're living their life? They're trusting in doing what God told them to do. Works. Keep the law. Make the sacrifices. Do this. Do that. Don't do this. Have all these things. All of the Old Testament is based upon works. All of it. You say, well, you know, I'm, uh, give me somebody who isn't. The closest you get are the sure mercies of David. And even then, even then he has to be judged and taken care of. It is not. He is concerned. David is concerned, Psalm 51, with losing the Holy Spirit of God upon him. You realize that in this dispensation where you and I are, no Christian should ever have to worry that they're going to lose the Holy Spirit of God. There's no reason for them to worry because it's a different salvation. The Old Testament saint, he's sitting there and all he's done is he's hoping he's got everything in order and he's done everything he knows to do. And so God can give him righteousness for the works that he has done so that God can overlook and be gracious to him and merciful to him. Because we understand also that all the sacrifices they made in the Old Testament, by the time you get to Hebrews, you find out very quickly that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. So how can their salvation be our salvation? It doesn't work. They have to follow the works of the law. They have to follow the works or the commandments that they were given. And if they fail at that, they have zero chances. 
of stepping into a sinless, perfect heaven. Now, that's going to get me into something here in a moment, and I really don't know if I want to do it, and I have no slide for it, so uh, we're going to see. But you have the dispensation of the grace of God. The grace of God shows up. This is from the cross all the way out to the rapture of the church. Approximately 2,000 years of history will be covered when Jesus Christ finalizes it and comes back and takes the church home. All right? Now, uh, this is of great note right here. This is ultimately in God's timeline a parenthetical moment. It's as if He has stopped the clock and moved over to something entirely different. Because you and I are entirely different than anything else. And the reason it is on pause is because God has a plan that He is running for Abraham that you and I aren't a part of. Now we're pictured as the stars of heaven and we're pictured as the spiritual fruit from Abraham and we're children of Abraham because we've been grafted in and all those things. But God didn't want that as His plan. You know what He wanted as His plan? The nation of Israel to accept Him and bring Him through and take Him and go ahead and finish out what He had planned to do. So instead He puts on pause and the dispensation of the grace of God, the dispensation you and I are in that is solely by grace through faith and not of works is given to us not as a replacement to Israel. It disannuls nothing that they have. Instead, it reinforces the fact that God is merciful and gracious. He extends salvation to the Gentiles. He leaves salvation available to the Jews, but now it becomes a personal thing instead of a corporate thing, a national thing for Israel. And instead, each individual can choose whether they trust Jesus Christ or not. And so you, in this dispensation, end up with the Jews, the Gentiles. Both groups are lost without Jesus Christ until they trust Him. And then they become a separate group entirely called the Church of God. And here we are. It's the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. And with Jesus Christ, you step into the church. Now that doesn't eliminate that the Jews still exist and that God's promises are still there forever. In fact, if you can't figure that out, read Romans chapter 10, you'll figure it out. Uh, Chapter 11, I'm sorry. And you'll figure it out. That blindness in part hath happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. It's a momentary blindness for them. They don't understand. And so God goes ahead and He reaches to the Gentiles. The test of of this dispensation is, will you by faith believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures? Or are you going to go about your own works? And so Christ goes ahead and He is going to be rejected. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. There'll be a whole lot of people that are stepping, their, stepping all the way off into a lake of fire for all of eternity because they refuse to trust that Jesus Christ could save them to the uttermost. And He'll save you. And they choose to reject Him. They choose to say, no, I don't want it. He hands them the free gift of eternal life and they say, I don't want to open that package, I'm done. They choose their good works. They choose their religion. They choose to say that there is no God. They choose to go ahead and think that He doesn't exist. They choose all these things. And they choose anything but Him. And anything but Him is failure in this dispensation. You and I have been given the dispensation of the grace of God. You and I have it made in the shade. We have the best dispensation in the world. Uh, There is no time period like you and I are living in. The graciousness and the mercy of God. You and I have it the best. Say, how do you know that? Because you and I don't have to do any work at all. We just have to figure out that Jesus died for us. And that He'll save us if we call upon Him. Man, that's easy. You know what's amazing is? He allows this to run longer than He did for any other dispensation. The free gift of God is offered for 2,000 years. You talk about a merciful and a gracious God. He lets the blood of Jesus Christ stay in effect for 2,000 years as a free gift. Ultimately, when someone rejects Jesus Christ, if they die in this life before a rapture happens, 
They will appear before the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. And behold, I saw a great white throne with him that sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and every man was judged according to their works. And he says, And whosoever was not found written in a book of life was cast into a lake of fire which is the second death. Oh, by the way, I have a typo. I just noticed it. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, not 20. There aren't 20 verses in that chapter. It's only 15. So I apologize. But that's where they go. Without Jesus Christ, it's a lake of fire for all of eternity. Amen. Judgment is set. You get down to the last line here. It's the great tribulation is where they go if they're alive at the coming of Jesus Christ, and they don't have Jesus as their Savior, the judgment is you're going to step into the great tribulation. Now you can deem this a, an entire dispensation if you like. I don't mind. Uh, I put it in here as a dispensation, but this is the dispensation of judgment. And this is to judge ultimately. It will judge all three groups during this time period. Uh, the Jews are, are under the judgment of the Antichrist in power. And he's going to bring judgment to them, and God's going to allow that to work. He's also going to be judging the Gentiles because it's the choice of whether they'll still follow the Antichrist or if they'll come and trust him and follow him. Uh, it's also a judgment time for the church because at the same time this is going on, the judgment seat of Christ is going on, and you and I as the church are getting rewarded for our labors. And so it is a time of judgment. It runs from the rapture of the church all the way to the second advent of Jesus Christ. You could also put the coming until the advent. Now this is important because I'm going to tell you this right here. i got to slide this in. Because you get these people who don't understand some things. And they don't understand and then you get people like Stephen Anderson who give them some great stupidity and they, they buy it hook, line, and sinker because they don't understand there's a division. They don't rightly divide. The Lord talks about coming and He talks about an advent. Now those are two separate things. And they're separated by what we call the Great Tribulation. What the Bible describes as tribulation and the time of Jacob's trouble, all that it's in the middle between two events. You say, what's the difference? Jesus Christ comes for His bride. And we meet the Lord in the air. And nobody sees Him but us. And then a little while later, you know what He does? He comes down to go ahead and take care of Israel. And deal with Israel's enemies. The second advent, he sets his feet down upon the Mount of Olives after he has ruined the enemy. And he comes walking into his city, the holy city, New, uh, the holy city Jerusalem. He walks in and he restores all order and he sits upon the throne of his father David and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. The coming is not the advent. Amen. And you better make sure you understand those two events are separate. You say, why? Because you'll find very quickly that uh, they are described very differently. And if you get them confused, you'll start missing where the rapture is supposed to be put and you'll get into a whole bunch of false doctrine and then you'll get somebody to convince you that you're going into this time instead of staying right where you're supposed to. And I'm going to get, I'm going to get more of that stuff. But uh, the ones that are alive and remain during, or uh, I'm sorry, the test. I got all the way ahead of myself now. Uh, the test in this age is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, that sounds good. That sounds just like ours. Except... Uh, they must maintain works. One of the key works is that they are not allowed to take the mark of the beast. They're not supposed to worship his image. They are not supposed to do those things. Instead, they are supposed to allow themselves to be martyred if that is the case, beheaded in, in the tribulation. Uh, if you go ahead and you look at those passages, you find out very quickly that in order to keep their salvation, they need the testimony of, Je uh, they need the, uh, testimony of God and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what they need. They need testimony of obeying God's commandments and they need to go ahead and remain faithful to Him but believe Jesus Christ to wash them of their sins. Jesus Christ is still the only means of washing their sins. And they get their sins washed but then they have to go ahead and maintain. You and I have no maintenance to do. Now we ought to be careful to maintain good works and we ought to do all those things and we ought to be good and we ought to be righteous and we ought to be holy because He's holy and we have all those verses. But if you and I sin, 
We don't lose salvation. You got all these Christians worried about taking a mark. Oh man, it's all going to be, you're going to have the mark and all this stuff. And COVID, that vaccine was going to be a mark. And like all this stuff started coming out. You heard all that, right? I'm not the only one that heard all that weirdness. Oh man, I'm worried about taking the mark and then I'm not going to go to heaven. What? What weird Christian are you? <laughs> Guess what? If the mark's in effect and you accidentally got it somehow, doesn't matter to you. You're not in the tribulation. You're sealed onto the day of redemption. The mark can't even get in there. I don't know what's happening with you, but if God sealed you, you're done. That's easy. All right? Uh, the devil's not going to break the seal. I promise. He doesn't have the power to. There's only one person who's powerful enough to loose the seals. Um, that's just a fun play on words. I understand. All right? Uh, if you don't get the reference, read Revelation, man. Um, and so here we are. Uh, and they choose. The vast majority of the world will choose to go ahead and worship the Antichrist. They'll take the mark and they will not turn to God. No matter how much plagues, no matter how, much, uh, no, no matter how many vials and bowls and trumpets and all the plagues start pouring down upon the world, God is trying to get their attention to go, you are going the wrong way and they still keep going the way they're going to go. There's no stopping it. And so those that die in the tribulation will show up once again at a great white throne judgment. And I copied and pasted the other one, and so I have the wrong reference right there. And I fixed it on the last slide and forgot to go back and fix it on the other one. So uh, that's only through verse 15 again. And so they show up at a great white throne. And then lastly, those who are still alive... They are at the judgment of nations. They stand before God and He judges them. Jesus Christ judges between the sheep nations and the goat nations. Now this is where you go all the way back to Abraham's promise. Say, so what's part of Abraham's promise? I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That promise has never gone away, not for a day. I guarantee you I will guarantee this. When we turn on Israel, if America turns on Israel, America is done. And there is zero question in my mind for that. Amen. Zero. You say, don't you love America? Of course I love America. I live here. Don't you want America to prosper and be great? Of course, I'm selfish. Right? That's the answer to that. We're selfish. We, of course we do. But the truth is, if they go against Israel, there's nothing I can do. God will bring judgment. In the at the end of the tribulation, God deals with the nations and figures out who, tr who was uh, good to Israel and who wasn't good to Israel of the people who are left on the planet. And God goes ahead and brings a judgment to them. If you want to know more about that, read Matthew chapter 25 and you'll see the sheep nations and the goat nations. The last dispensation. Praise the Lord. Y'all are excited now. <laughs> You're like, whew. I don't know that I've talked this fast for this long in a very long time. Uh, but the dispensation of righteousness. The second advent, Jesus Christ steps foot back down on the Mount of Olives. He has just gone ahead and conquered all of the enemies. The army of the devil is taken. He has taken the, the beast and the false prophet. He's cast them into a lake of fire. The, Satan has been bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. Uh, there is peace. There is the king of all the universe sitting upon a throne of his father, David, Jesus Christ, ruling with a rod of iron, perfect government, perfect king, perfect throne. He's got all the right people in the right places ruling and reigning with him for a thousand years. And the test is very simple. Obey and worship God sitting upon a throne in front of your face. <laughs> There's a literal lake of fire burning on the planet. Edom is turned into burning pitch. And all they have to do is recognize he can put me in a lake of fire whenever he feels like it. I need to behave. And at the end of a thousand years, total and final rebellion. It takes them but a moment to decide they're going to go against the king of the universe. And they surround the, the holy city, they surround Jerusalem, and they're going to come and get him. And you know what he says? fire you know I'm going to get a little preachy here we're going to get into the preaching now 
you realize that the world is so ridiculous that the homosexual groups and all the LGBTQ elementals and all the crazy letters and whatever it is, you know, you, you, you're going to run out of an alphabet here soon. You're just going to have to make up stuff. They're already making up stuff, but now you've got to make up letters too uh, to cover everything. You know what they do? They grab that, they grab that flag and they, they hold up a rainbow as if God can't judge them. And the reality is God made a promise to Noah that he would never flood the earth with water. He just said, I'm done using water. He's got an entirely different flood. And he's going to melt the elements with a fervent heat and he's going to destroy it by fire. Because a world, he's done. He's done dealing with the world as it is. He says, you know what I'm going to do? Uh, I, I already did it. I already did it with water. I'm going to do it with fire now and we're going to make this permanent. And he folds up the heavens as a garment. And he tosses it aside and he burns the thing. <laughs> he says, all right, I'm done with that. Why? Because they refuse to trust me. And so you know what they do? They step everybody, the dead, small and great, stand before God. And if they weren't at a judgment seat of Christ, they are showing up right here. And they're standing in front of a holy God face to face. And you know what they're going to have to do? They're going to have to give an account for all their works. Everything they've ever done. And the world likes to go, well, you know, if my good works outweigh my bad works. But that's not the final judgment. The final judgment is, do you have any bad works? Have you sinned? Because if you've told one lie, according to the Bible, you are not righteous and you do not deserve a sinless heaven. And because of that, you are cast into a lake of fire forever and ever because your sin is against a holy God and you are the one who has caused the crucifixion of, the, of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him with His stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way and the Lord had laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ. And he ends it, this is the final judgment. After this, you step off into eternity, and I'm not going to get into all that. Say, so why, why does a dispensation matter? Why does it matter if I have a dispensational view within my Bible? Why does it matter that when I turn the pages, I know where that belongs? He told us to rightly divide the word of truth. All right, he told us to. That's a command. Study, that's a command. It's an imperative. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He says this, uh, er, uh, you see number one on the list, it eliminates and explains false doctrine. There's a ton of false teaching in the world. Tons of it. Uh, you know, well, why, why, do we, uh, why do we believe in eternal security and why do so many people teach that you can lose your salvation after you've got it? Wrong dispensation. You say, are there dispensations you can lose it? We covered it. The tribulation's a big one. You lose it all the time in there. You've got to be real careful. That's why you get to Hebrews. How many of you love the book of Hebrews? I love the book of Hebrews. It's got some awesome stuff in there. But you realize that in Hebrews, if you lose your salvation, you don't get it back? Hebrews? You go, oh man, what? Yeah. To restore him again is to crucify Christ afresh. We can't do that. If you lose it, you don't have it. If you've tasted the heavenly gift and seen everything and all that stuff, I think it's chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, maybe chapter 6. If you were once enlightened to renew him again, it's impossible. He says it's impossible. You can't get saved twice. Well, guess what? The name Hebrews tells you who that's written to. The Hebrews. You say, but there's so much stuff in there about Jesus Christ dying and all these things. Yeah, because you know when it takes effect as well? After you and I are gone in a tribulation, when the Jews are here and they're supposed to be looking for a Savior. Hebrews, James, including some things in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation, all point to them and not us. Say, so how do I know what's to me and what's not to me? Rightly divide. So how do I know what's in my dispensation? Know what's in your dispensation. What are the rules that you are supposed to abide by? Paul lays out the rules very clearly. 
the cornerstone of everything we believe in, virtually every single piece can be found in the book of Romans. If you can hold to the book of Romans and understand that, you know what you'll find? Anything outside that starts disagreeing, you start going, okay, I don't know what that is. That probably doesn't, wasn't written to me. You realize the majority of the Bible was not written to you. Because most of it's not about you. You know, the main theme of the entirety of the scriptures is this. That right there. The day that Jesus Christ takes his throne and sits upon it and rules and reigns for a thousand years. There's more scripture about this event than in any other event in the entirety of your Bible. People go, no, no, it must be Calvary. No, Calvary is the greatest event for you. Calvary is the greatest event for you when you got salvation. But that's not Jesus Christ's day. You realize what this day is called? When Jesus Christ steps out, you know what it is? It's the day of the Lord. It's His day, He calls it. His day. Wedding day, ladies. That's the bride's day. That's her day. That's why the husband just smiles and nods, right? Do whatever you want. Decorate it. Yep, looks great, babe. Wonderful. Absolutely. Don't you have an opinion? Nope. You say, why? Because it's not my day. Right, gentlemen? We know better. If you don't know better, you better get to knowing better. And right, your answer is whatever you want. I'll do whatever I can to make what you want happen. When it's Jesus Christ's day, you know what he does? I'm going to take what I want. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to sit upon a throne. It's my day. And I'm going to rule and I'm going to reign. The Bible's all about him. It's not about your salvation. It's all about him. And so once you start getting into these, you get all these weird false doctrines. Well, how do you get that we've replaced the nation of Israel? You've messed up your doctrine. You didn't divide something that's not written to you. You start putting things where they belong. And when you start putting things where they belong, things start to become very clear throughout the scriptures as to how they fit together as opposed to standing there and you wondering how does that fit when it doesn't fit anything else that you know. I mentioned it before, Martin Luther does not, didn't like the book of James. I would light my fire with the book of James. Why? Because he didn't understand how they could make the statement, faith without works is dead. And if you don't have the works, then you don't have faith. And don't you, doesn't that mean that you need works for salvation? And he goes, I know that a man cannot be justified by the deeds of the law, Romans but by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 6. He started hammering out the other verses. Where did he go? He ran to Romans and he ran to Corinthians and he ran to those books. And you know what he says? He says, I don't understand what that is over there, but I do know that it is not what I know. So what did he miss? He missed the first verse. James to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. A tribulation book. The Antichrist comes in and scatters them and they run and they flee, it's written to them. So you know what they need? Faith and works. And he couldn't figure it out. But you know what he knew what to do with it? You say, I can't figure out where all these passages go. You don't have to figure out where they go. One number one thing you need to do is figure out if it belongs to you or not. And if it doesn't belong to you, you know what you can do? You can just go, I don't know what that is, but I'll set it aside. I don't know where it goes yet. Because otherwise your doctrine will start to get messed up. It also shows how God has tried to reach to mankind. God tries over and over again to reach to mankind and get them to see and get them to do and get them to follow. Each successive age shows that he wants to reach mankind. And in doing so, he removes all of mankind's excuses. Amen. Every excuse. You step in front of God. Well, you know, uh, if you would have just... If you would have just given me a perfect environment and a perfect place and uh, you would have made it so that I could, I could, you know, be perfectly innocent, I wouldn't have messed it up. Adam and Eve messed it up. By the way, we'll try it again in the millennium. That way we don't just have those two people messing it up. I'll go ahead and let millions and billions mess it up and turn against me and still have everything perfect, but you still just know how to mess it up. 
well, you know, if you just gave me, how about you just give me some law that I could just follow? If you just write it down for me. He goes, okay, I put it on two tables of stones and I handed it to Moses. Well, let your conscience be your guide. Well, that failed. You know, if we could just get the right government in place. Okay, I'll tell you exactly how to run the government. Capital punishment and, and man fails. Do what I tell you to do. Okay, well, man fails. Finally, the last argument he gets to. Job's argument. Job's argument is God is not a man. Or I could contend with him. I could plead my cause before the high God. I could go ahead and, I mean, if I just had somebody who would understand how it is to be a man, I could go ahead and make my complaint, but God doesn't know what it's like to be a man. And if he was like a man, then obviously, God, you couldn't pass the same test you gave me. You obviously would fail. And Jesus Christ says, okay, I'll come down. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And down he comes. And he lives a perfect and a sinless life and the only sinless man to ever be goes ahead and gets crucified for the sins of the world. And he gave his life a ransom for many. He says, no, you know what I'll do now? On top of me passing the test, I'll go ahead and tip the only other arguments you've got. One man sin entered into the world. That doesn't seem fair. Everybody's going to sin because Adam and Eve couldn't figure out what to do. God says, okay, by the, by the sin of one, many are made sinners. Okay, fine. By the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. I'll tip the scale right back. So what's he doing? Just eliminating all the arguments. Just eliminating them one right after the other. Hey, you know what I'll do? I'll give you salvation as a free gift. It couldn't be simpler than what we've got. It couldn't be any easier than what we've got. That Jesus Christ would pay the debt of all of our sins and all we have to do is trust that He died for us and He rose again and that we can go ahead and accept Him as our Savior and He'll forgive us of everything we've ever done, everything we're going to do, all of our failures, all of our faults will be taken care of and God's going to take us into a sinless, perfect heaven because He is a wonderful Savior. God says, I'll just eliminate all your excuses. You step up in front of me, you know what you'll find? You have no excuse. Jesus makes the statement in John chapter 15, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now I've come and there is no more cloak for their sins. When Jesus Christ showed up, you know what he did? He removed the last argument that mankind had. God is not a man. They could have had something to cover up that idea. Well, you know, if you'd, if you'd have been me, you would have sinned too, God. God says, nope, I'm ripping that last one off today. And I'm about to give my life. John 15, they're walking, from, they're walking from the Last Supper all the way out to Gethsemane. He's saying, if I didn't come, if I hadn't done this, they'd have had an argument. No more argument. That's what the dispensations are for. That are to prove mankind without God cannot have eternal life without His grace and His mercy and trust in Him. Lastly, or uh, number four, two more, reveals God's plan for His work throughout history. As God works through history, you find Him working and how He works, and He's got a plan for how everything's supposed to go. He's got, he's got a dispensation for the fullness of times. His end plan, he's got, a disp- he's got a set of rules for all of eternity. And lastly, This is the most important. God sets it up. You need to know dispensations. You need to know how to divide that stuff right here so that you know what you're responsible for. If you want a relationship with God, what am I responsible for so that I can have it? The dispensations are designed for mankind to be able to have a relationship with the Holy God that they shouldn't have. But God is gracious and He's merciful. So he sets it up. Well, how do I have that relationship with God? The Bible tells you. He tells you how to have salvation. He tells you how to be sanctified. He tells you how to live your life right. He tells you how to stay in fellowship with Him. He tells you all those things. But if you start getting into some weird doctrines because you start grabbing all these other things, you won't know what's for you and what's not for you. 
I'm going to give you one example, and then I've got to be done. I thought I was doing well, but now it's after 12, all right? So, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. I noticed all of you walked in today. I didn't see too many folks with their hands chopped off. Eyes plucked out. Feet missing. Why don't you follow that? If you don't believe in dispensations, you, you need to follow that. I mean, Jesus told you to do that. If your foot offend thee, cut it off. Your hand offend thee, cut it off. Eye offend thee, pluck it out. Oh, you ready? Someone who doesn't believe in dispensations, you know what their answer is? Well, that's just an allegory. That's figurative. You can't take that literal. Why would you take that literal? Because Jesus commanded it. But when does it fit? Well, you find out the whole passage is about the kingdom of heaven. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, you find out the kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom of God. And if you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the kingdom of God is your kingdom. Spiritual. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom he's about to bring in when he steps down at a second advent and rules and reigns for a thousand years. And if you step up in front of God Almighty sitting upon a throne who can throw you into a lake of fire for being disobedient, you know what the answer is? I'd rather have my foot cut off. That's literal. You better cut your foot off if you can't figure out how to get that thing under control because it keeps taking you to the wrong place because you'll wind up in a lake of fire for all of eternity because the king is ruling with a rod of iron sitting upon a throne. And you're going to be in trouble. If your eye, Pluck your eye out. Stop doing it. Either figure out how to get it under control or you might want to rip that thing out before it costs you your eternal soul. That's the difference. I mean, he means that literal? Yeah, because it's better to be halt or maimed or everything else than to go in and, and than to get cast into a lake of fire. It's a whole lot better to have eternal life and do what you're supposed to do than go ahead and say, why don't we do that? Because it wasn't written to me. And I'm awfully glad that it wasn't written to me. There's plenty of things that people in common sense would look at and go, that can't possibly be to me. Realize the entirety of the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament anyways, covers the law written to the nation of Israel and them fulfilling or not fulfilling the law. And Jesus Christ says that he took the law, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He removed all that stuff. How can salvation in the Old Testament be the same as the new? It doesn't work. Now, I really want to keep going, but I can't, so I'm going to stop. Are you coming back tonight? Come back tonight. Tonight, I'm going to answer a question that I was asked a long time ago. I wasn't going to do any of this. Lord, help me. I'm not ready for this, all right? So I'm going to answer this question. I'm going to answer the question. John Matelski asked me his first real question sitting down at discipleship. He asked me this. He said he'd ask every priest, religious leader he'd ever had to deal with. He said, Jesus Christ is dead. He's buried. He rose again three days later. What's he doing those three days? All right. So tonight, I'm going to fill in a little piece of this that I didn't put in here because it's real complicated. And I'm going to try to do my best to get it done in a decent amount of time. All right. So let's go ahead and stand. This isn't, you know, a big barnstormer of an invitation message. I get that. It is Sunday morning. And I, I don't like to not do an invitation. All right? So we're going to do a quick invitation. If someone comes, we'll extend. If you need to come, please do. I don't want you to not come just because. But the truth is, I am very grateful for salvation brought to me by Jesus Christ. I am real glad I live in the dispensation that I live in because it was just as simple as a free gift. And maybe you're in here today and a lot of this was super deep. This is some of the deepest stuff you'll ever get 
Well, you're in a church just having a, just having a service. <laughs> All right, I normally teach this in a Sunday school class over a lot of time and not in one hour on a Sunday morning. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you right now have the greatest opportunity of anybody that will ever live to have salvation given to you for free by the blood of Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And all he asks is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Receive a gift from Jesus. You can do that today. Praise the Lord. We're in the best dispensation, in my opinion, that you'll ever get. Christian, maybe you just need to come and say, thank you, Lord, for a great book. And thank you for giving me some wisdom as I read it. And thank you for just showing me some stuff. And maybe you got some help today and you just want to thank him. I don't know what it is, but praise the Lord. He's a wonderful God. And maybe you, you just got reminded of some stuff and you just want to praise him and thank him. He's a great God. Don't ever leave that off. If, he's, if you need to thank him, please do. Praise him because he's worthy of all of it. Lord, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for this church, Father, and the stand that we take upon the greatness of a wonderful Bible. Lord, we love you and we pray you would bless the invitation. Even now, I pray if someone doesn't know Jesus, they would come and they would get a personal relationship with him. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.